most you know. Though grown-ups might look at him with fright, the children all love him so. See why if you know who I am, a jack-o'-lantern. At Halloween time every year, I sit up here and watch everybody go by. It's a nice and scary time, isn't it? All those wonderful costumes and masks and makeup. I think about how much fun Halloween is. Those kinds of things scare me too, but in a different way. Now a pumpkin's not easy to carve. I know that. <laughs> Getting my inside scooped out tickles me. <laughs> It'd tickle you too, if if you were a pumpkin. But look at Corey's hand. <laughs> kind of gooey, isn't it? All right, all you really junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 151 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be nothing less than, naturally, the Bacardi episode of 100, of, of 100, what? Whatever. The SLS Cast. And here's why. Because as every good alcoholic knows, or just good drinker knows, Bacardi has a wonderfully, highly alcoholic rum called... Bacardi 151. And with that little bit of flaming alcohol knowledge, I, of course, am your apparently tongue-tied host, Matt. And coming to us all the way from California would be our resident Sony employee. Ah. Matthias, right now I am pouring myself a small glass of Saranac pumpkin ale. Why do you think I would be pouring myself a glass, a small glass, of Saranac pumpkin ale? I don't know. That is because, Matthew, or Matthias, this is our Halloween episode. And you started off with talking about Bacardi 151. Where is your sense of Halloween lore at? 
There's a bat in the logo of Bacardi. Does that count? Are we good? What's your name? Tim. There we go. <laughs> the real tongue-tied host of the SLS cast. I believe it. So are you drinking Bacardi 151 right now? Is that what prompted the Bacardi 151 bit of fact? Actually, no. My favorite Bacardi is Bacardi 7. It's a seven-year aged spiced rum. It's really, really good. It's also pretty fucking pricey. <clears throat> but I just happened to... I, I prefer to... Uh, I, I simply believe that when you do something, you should do the thing right. And when it comes to drinking, the goal is to get drunk. Now, I'm not saying stupid, falling over, vomit, kill people on the road kind of drunk. No. And if you do get drunk, of course, designated driver it up or taxi at home. Or just but, be very convincing. <laughs> <clears throat> but I do believe that you should definitely do the thing properly if you're going to do it. And why do just regular Bacardi when you can get Bacardi 151? It's the same like people will request wild turkey and yet I do wild turkey 101 because that's much better than the regular 80 proof. So um, that is... That is how I like to do my drinking. I like to drink Jameson Black Label over regular Jameson. Does that make me cool also? If it's got a higher alcohol content, then yes. It sure as hell is more expensive, so I do hope it is (laughs) (laughs) higher in alcohol. aged differently. Yes. At any rate, though. So what what have you been doing, sir? And uh, what are your plans for Halloween? Oh, man. We're on the 26th of October. This is the 26th of October. I I saw a couple concerts last week. Saw Meatloaf. I saw that. Yeah, and 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 Text Slash. I went to go see Slash. You did. How were those foreign people you were surrounded by? Were they good? <laughs> well, well, Meatloaf uh, was probably the worst concert I've been to since moving out to L.A. Oh, it was horrible. Aww. Like apparently he has Meatloaf today. Uh, he's been suffering. Not, I don't know about. Well, I'm sure it's suffering if you're an artist and you have a cyst on your throat or in your throat that you had to have it remove. And so I went to go see the show and every time he would sing high when he wasn't singing all gravelly and struggling, like whenever he would hit his high notes, it would, it would pierce your ears. It's like Michael Myers was stabbing you repeatedly in the eardrums every time anybody went high pitched. And I thought, well, okay, well, maybe this is the the last of his tour, and he just isn't feeling well, and maybe the sound guy, you know, maybe the sound guy just doesn't care anymore. Nope. That was the second night of their 15-leg tour, or or 18-leg tour, or something like that. So he has a long road ahead of him. Slash was great. Slash was awesome. One of the best concerts I've ever been to. Uh, But more importantly, more Halloween-y, I went to a pumpkin patch this past Saturday, me and the significant other. We went on a, a tractor ride where we got to, well, we actually did our own farming, which is kind of cool. But I've never, I, I mean, I, I must have been like a toddler the last time I went to a legitimate pumpkin patch and was surrounded by thousands of pumpkins. Because I guess if you were just surrounded by a couple hundred pumpkins, it's not that much. So thousands of pumpkins just surrounding you. 
it was delightful and had some of the best pumpkin pie while we were there. It was it was great. Does the Matthew family, the family of Matthew, celebrate their pumpkin christening by going to a pumpkin patch or do you just go to like Kroger or something? When we bother to do pumpkin carving or pumpkining at all, it's generally just go down to the Kroger. We have a couple of uh, pumpkins in the kitchen at the moment, and uh, I imagine those will get carved this week. Are you the master carver in the family? I carved the last one because, I don't know, apparently everybody ran out of time or something or whatever. My artistic ability lies in... uh, you know, like doing the show with you, of course, and jokes, uh, some light singing and, you know, whatever else. Um, I, I have no artistic <laughs> ability when it comes to anything that needs to be designed, drawn, carved, cut, <laughs> crafted. None. I'm not good at that. Do you have that on your job application? I'm good at jokes and light singing. Yeah. But when it comes sure. to pumpkin Doesn't carving. everybody? <laughs> yeah, not pumpkin carving. Well, pumpkin carving is one of those things where, like, it just so happens nobody else in the family has time to do it. So then you get stuck with doing it. Seems like one of those things, I guess. How was your past week? I don't know. Like, it was the strongest hurricane to ever be in the Pacific Ocean or something like that. I don't even remember the name of it. Penelope? Paula Penelope Cruz? Something, I don't know what it was, but uh, at any rate, so it had sustained winds of like 165 miles an hour, and it slams into the Mexican coast. However, the Sierra Madre mountain range completely just neuters this stupid hurricane. So thankfully, no one was um, seriously hurt, or there, there were no deaths reported or anything like that, thankfully. But basically, by the time the actual torrential rain came through it had made landfall instead in texas so we spent this last weekend just being rained on and again thankfully nothing like super heavy oh dear god we're gonna die kind of rain just non-stop rain for two and a half days so this year i must ask are you gonna dress up like what's his name from family guy because you've been talking about doing this for the past Three years now. Three years now, yeah. Uh, Again, I am constantly foiled on the green pants. I have the shirt. I have the glasses. I have actually even committed to for the last three and a half months, and I have grown my hair out too. But no, no green pants. So if I can't find the green pants by Friday, then I'm, once again, no. Does Matt have shaggy hair? A little bit. Really? So can you like take a video of yourself like swinging your head from side to side and doing it in <laughs> slow motion? Uh no, it's not quite it's not quite that flippant yet, but it is actually uh, it, it is damn near bouffant level so that I can now pull totally bring it back. Uh I can part it down the middle on the sides, whatever. Uh, I can actually, you know, run the fingers through it, and then it it actually flows through my fingers. But it's not still not quite enough that I can like, you know, do the shampoo commercial thing. I mean, it's not it's not Tim hair. It's not quite Tim hair. <laughs> yeah, my hair my hair I'll is significantly longer. Hair. But I've been meaning to tell you that I I always thought that you would look awfully 
dashing with a pompadour. Well, you know, I think if I keep the sides going at this rate, because the the sides are in that in-between stage where it's it's not long enough that I could really let it go over the ear. Uh, so I still have to kind of, you know, now that I'm actually using a brush again for, I don't, can't even tell you how long it's been since I've been doing that. Um, so I have to bring the sides back with the brush, and it's almost enough where I could do a ducktail. Do you remember those from the 50s? <laughs> yeah. Could probably swing one of those. Yeah, look out. Look out, you guys. All the women remember? that are listening to the show. If any right. are they, still they listening to the show, face. they're like, they oh, these tails. guys... Yeah, I get I get ducktails. A woo. So Well, what are the Halloween plans before we uh, move on? Friday after work I have a party that I'm going to and then Saturday after work uh if I can get out early enough then do a little bit with the kids in the trick or treating department and then we have been invited to yet another party. Um, I do not know if we will get to go to that one. That really just depends on the sitter action, as it were. Maybe two parties. Definitely <laughs> one. Yeah, we're going to uh, Halloween Town. They're doing the Hollywood Bowl up like Halloween Town from Nightmare Before Christmas. And they're doing a live performance of Nightmare Before Christmas with Danny Elfman actually performing as Jack Skellington. Because he did the, vo- the singing voice of Jack Skellington in the movie. With a full orchestra, and they're going to have people coming out. I assume the original folk that uh, that provided the singing voices for the characters will be there and be singing their parts as well. So it's going to be cool. It's going to be a lot of people dressed up as Jack and Sally's and other Tim Burton characters. So it should be a lot of fun. A lot, and, I, and I'm hoping. I'm hoping I'm not going to get a homeless man's pee thrown at me, and or we're not going to get shot at by. The Los Angeles Mounted Police. So, really pushing for this year to be safe. Outstanding. Yeah. Well, now that we've uh, seemingly... I don't know. I was expecting this part of the segment to be better. <laughs> somehow I feel like we've kind of ground to a halt. Yeah, what happened? <laughs> Wait, what's going on? I don't, I don't know. It just seems like... Well, you know, maybe maybe it's missing your Satan. Maybe Satan needs to come in and, and carry on to the next segment. Wait a minute. Was it me that... I thought you did Satan. No, you were Satan. Oh. Well, Timothy. Now that I am Satan, I am here. (laughs) To damn your eternal soul. Are your plans still the same for this Halloween to remain safe? So that you will try and stay out of my clutches? Clutch, clutch. Satan, were you the homeless man who peed in that bottle and was just walking around Hollywood hoping to cross my path so you can throw it at my face? Yes, yes. Actually, actually, I, I was really upset because I was a little drunk. And instead of hitting you in the head, causing the bottle to shatter and therefore killing you, uh, instead it merely missed you and just got urine on your shoulder. Highly embarrassing. I know, and you know what? For My shoulder us, has never smelt the same ever since, to be honest. Even yes. cats walk by and they're, you know, they judge me. As well they should, because you're a pussy. <laughs> Satan, <laughs> you are a dick. <laughs> well, that's what Saddam tells me. Fuck you, Satan. <laughs> Thank you for getting that joke. I appreciate that. 
I don't I don't think we've made this any better. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and move on. We've got uh, in the mailbox, there's actually some mail this time. Well, I say some. There is one. We have another Twitter follower, and it alerted us. Make it more spooky. Oh, spooky. Okay. <clears throat> well, here in the eternal damnation of hell, I've been given the opportunity to do the do, do, do the actual email reading for the SLS cast. You see, once a year, I am summoned from the depths of the pits. And it's it's really quite refreshing. I don't often get to do it uh, because I'm so busy trying to plan the downfall of everywhere else in the world. And yet, now I, I am uh, here. And of course, in perfect time and things because I am obviously the Prince of Darkness and no one really wants me to win. I don't even have a whole bunch of email to read for these stupid people. I actually have to just read about a Twitter follower. But apparently you can send an email to me, the devil. Well, okay, you're actually going to send it to Matt and Tim. But you can still pretend it's me, the devil, and send it to the show at slscast.com. So apparently their Twitter follower is... At dear underscore booze. You see, this is someone I can relate to. Dear boobs? Uh, dear underscore booze. Booze, not boobs. Okay. Yes. Uh, from Love Me. That is the name of this wonderful person who has uh, booze. Uh, it is a collection of letters to my best friend booze. They are from Central California. And you can go to the dearbooze.com, www.dearbooze.com. And there's lots of stuff there about drinking. And maybe you won't be safe and you will die and come and join me. <laughs> How do you know? Maybe I was the one who sent this. Maybe I, the devil, am actually at dear underscore booze. But until next year, thank you, Matt and Tim, for letting me do this stupid, stupid job. I'm going back to hell now. I can tell myself to go to hell. Thanks, Lucifer. Appreciate that. <laughs> Maybe. You can also follow us on Twitter <laughs> at the SLScast if you like. Maybe you should change your dot job description to lounge singing and a couple jokes. And, and terrible devil impersonation. <laughs> Here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> And first up from me actually comes to us from reddit.com slash r slash movies. Now, this is an op-ed from one of the admins of the movie subreddit for Reddit. I actually uh, did message this admin and asked for permission to use this. So I've got uh, direct permission, as it were, from user mi-16evil. So it even fits our Halloween theme. How perfect is that? <clears throat> Box office week. Miserable weekend sees bad openings for every new film. The Last Witch Hunter, Steve Jobs, and Paranormal Activity, The Ghost Dimension flop, while 
both Rock the Casbah and Gem and the Holograms have the number three and number four worst wide release openings ever. Uh, this is actually some really good information here. All of these numbers are actually sourced from boxofficemojo.com. So this is someone who actually really knows his stuff and breaks down, doesn't just go through and give you the data, but actually breaks down the meanings behind the data. So the actual top five uh, movies of the week were The Martian, Goosebumps, Bridge of Spies, Last Witch Hunter, and Hotel Transylvania. And it's pretty telling that The Martian is a pretty fucking popular movie. It's... Uh, it's number one movie. It's four weeks in a row now. The uh, Goosebumps and Bridge of Spies are actually in their second week, whereas, of course, Last Witch Hunter debuted in uh, here in fourth place. And then Hotel Transylvania bringing up the rear on the top five, and it's in its fifth week. But the... The sad part is, is all these movies, again, Last Witch Hunter, Steve Jobs, Paranormal Activity, of all these films, only one of them came in in the top five, and again, that was Last Witch Hunter. And it's kind of interesting, because MI16 Evil uh, says that the only one of the five new releases to make it into the top five was Last Witch Hunter, which barely made $10 million on a $75 million budget. It swapped places with Crimson Peak, and it seems likely the failure puts a nail in the idea that Vin Diesel is a big enough star outside of ensembles like Guardians of the Galaxy and Fast and Furious, which I think is really interesting. But goes on to write that Universal is feeling the pain for the first time all year. No one is going to doubt Universal's incredible success in 2015, but they aren't exactly ending the year with grace. First, Everest seemed like a monster hit in IMAX. It fizzled out in wide release. The Then, Crimson Peak vastly underperformed on a significantly high budget for a small-scale horror film, which, of course, we covered last week. Now, Steve Jobs, their big entry into the prestige picture race didn't capture the early buzz and only opened to 7.1 million at number seven. Uh, many are pointing to the strong limited release as a testament that Universal made a mistake going with the old model of limited to wide for smaller films and should have opened wide at the height of the film's media attention. This combined with terrible drops for the wide release of Everest and The Wall could mark a significant move away from limited to wide release model in the future. I happen to agree with this statement. This is definitely something that while I understand the point of doing limited to wide because uh, even with a limited release on the smaller films, that's what gets them into the running for all of the awards, especially as we're coming we're getting pretty close to the wire in terms of being able to really submit for the award season. Granted, you'll see a lot of stuff in December, but this is kind of where all the where all these movies is like, I don't remember hearing about that movie. That's because they do limited to get them in. Um The interesting thing here, though, that I thought was really kind of funny was Aside from the fact that Rock the Casbah and Gem and the Holograms have done terrible, uh, and that they were the number three and worst, number three and four worst wide opening releases ever. And again, uh, MI16 Evil goes into great detail about these two things, which I thought was really interesting, especially given that Rock the Casbah is Bill Murray and Barry Levinson. So, 
we were expecting much better things. There's a little note here at the very end here. It says, one last little note. Do you know who released Gem and the Holograms? Universal. So now Universal can proudly, question mark, say that not only did they make more money than any other studio in a year, or that they have the number one best opening weekend of all time, they also have the number three worst as well. And that is kind of interesting. I mean, I'm not sure that's exactly something to be proud of, per se, but you've literally, in a year, managed to get the number one best and the number three worst of all time. That's pretty That's pretty crazy. Um, what do you think, Tim, uh, with these numbers? Are you surprised that Steve Jobs has done poorly at the box office? Um, I personally did not think The Last Witch Hunter was going to do anything myself but yeah i didn't think the last witch hunter was going to be all that because really vin diesel all he has going for himself as into being a big box office draw is fast and the furious that franchise because it has established followers and even possibly triple x which i know he is it's gonna he's gonna be in the third one i think it's triple x the return of xander cage or something and i have a feeling that movie is going to be big because that's going to be the return of Xander Cage and Triple X has a very good following as well. That was a big movie when I was in high school. I think taking a gamble with The Last Witch Hunter, Nicolas Cage, who I talked about briefly last week, he did a witch, I think he did a secret or something of the witch, season of the witch, did yeah. not do well. And I know they're trying to capitalize with The Last Witch Hunter coming out right before Halloween, but we already have. Goosebumps. I knew Goosebumps was going to do well because there's kind of a following. It's geared towards kids and families. And it was set out to be a fun movie. The Last Witch Hunter might be a little heavy-handed. And the same thing could be said with Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs probably would have done a lot better in December as things are kind of gearing closer towards the Academy Award nomination reveal. And I'm actually really looking forward to seeing Steve Jobs I've heard nothing but great things from people who I follow, and I love Michael Fassbender, and a lot of other people love Michael Fassbender. I just think it's a it's a victim of coming out at the wrong time. So, but I I, I do think that Universal can afford it with Jim and the Holograms. Yeah, I just I don't understand that. And again, uh, am I? 16 evil alludes to this because the the movie has literally nothing to do with the um with the cartoon and yet relies on that nostalgia from the cartoon to even exist. So I am curious what the hell they were thinking with that. It's um I was really impressed. I just I I really like these numbers and I like the explanation in an op-ed format. I definitely like it. It was very well formatted. So kudos MI16 evil over at Reddit. Um if you think that that's some interesting reading, then head on over to the subreddit of movies at reddit.com, and you too can enjoy that wonderful little bit of news. Uh, what do you got there for us, Tim? Maybe we should do a copycat throwdown of Josie and the Pussycats and Jim and the Holograms. You have to understand that Josie and the Pussycats would automatically win. I know, because that's like I, your favorite I movie. I cannot be biased. I can't, I can't be anything but biased. That is Matt's <laughs> fifth favorite movie, Josie and the Pussycats. <laughs> fifth or sixth. <laughs> I'm going to do uh, two uh, two pieces of news. First one up, 
From ScreenRant.com, the Quiet Man star Maureen O'Hara passes away at 95. This is written by Matthew McNabb, and it says this, There are so few classic film actors that are still with us, and today we are sad to announce the passing of yet another gem. Maureen O'Hara, the starlet dubbed, quote, the queen of technicolor, end quote, died comfortably in her Idaho home on Saturday at the age of 95. O'Hara was an Irish beauty known for her bold and fierce female leads in films that still resonate with audiences today, like Miracle on 34th Street and The Quiet Man. Her dozens of iconic feature film roles, many of which paired her with Western legend John Wayne, helped to solidify Maureen O'Hara as a silver screen legend. Maureen O'Hara was born Maureen Fitzsimmons on August 17th of 1920 and was raised in Dublin, Ireland in the Ranelagh District. O'Hara's acting career began in 1938 with screen tests in London, eventually leading to her first major feature film roles in Kicking the Moon Around, My Irish Molly, and Alfred Hitchcock's Jamaica Inn for Mayflower Pictures. It was the co-founder of that studio, actor Charles Lawton, whose early interest in O'Hara launched her career. He also convinced her to adopt the stage name of O'Hara. O'Hara would go on to star in dozens of noteworthy films over the years, such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Black Swan, Miracle on 34th Street, Tripoli, The Parent Trap, and Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation. Um, And I'm going to skip down here to where O'Hara's family issued the following statement on Saturday, saying, quote, It is with a sad heart that we share the news that Maureen O'Hara passed away today in her sleep of natural causes. Maureen was our loving mother, grandmother, great-grandmother, and a friend. She passed peacefully, surrounded by her loving family as they celebrated her life, listening to music from her favorite movie, The Quiet Man. And the article, there's more to the article, and there's also more to the family statement as well. So I'll end all quotes there. It's very sad to see her go, but again, she did pass away due to natural causes at the age of 95. Again, that was Maureen O'Hara who passed away. Next up, getting into my more Halloween-themed news, the Stanley Hotel. I think it's safe to say that a, a number of us, especially... A number of us horror fans are familiar with the Stanley Hotel, especially those of you who have seen The Shining. The hotel that The Shining is based is the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. Well, via Denver Business Journal, the morning edition, Stanley Hotel releases plans for a $24 million horror film center. This is written by Ben Miller, a contributing writer. There we go. And it says this, The historic Stanley Hotel in Estes Park would be the site of a new $24 million, 43,000 square foot horror film center if organizers can raise the money. The hotel was the location that inspired Stephen King to write The Shining. The Stanley Film Center would be the world's first horror-themed museum, film archive, and film production studio, according to organizers. But first, it needs money. So backers are asking for an $11.5 million credit through the State of Colorado's Regional Tourism Act. Last month, a Northern Colorado organization called Go NoCo made a request for Regional Tourism Act money for the Film Center, as well as financing requests for three other Northern Colorado projects. On Monday, the hotel released plans for the Film Center, which includes 
multiple indoor and outdoor entertainment venues, including a 500-seat auditorium, a 30,000-square-foot interactive museum and discovery center that would feature rotating exhibits, a 3,000-square-foot soundstage, classrooms, and workshop spaces, and post-production and editing suites. End all quotes there. And there's a little bit more to the article after that. So it's kind of interesting. Matt, do you think adding on to the Stanley Hotel to create this $24 million horror center would be pretty cool? A horror center, not to be confused with a whore center, which would be a brothel. <laughs> no, um, I think it's uh, um, ambitious, f- for sure. But I don't know that it... I, I, I don't know how successful it would be. Um, mainly because it is not something that is touristy per se. It literally becomes a destination in and of itself. Um, now, granted, being a part of that hotel thing, and I, I don't know. I just I'm not sure how successful in the long term. You know, three to five years. Is it still going to be there? Is it still going to be worth going to? And that would be my question. But it is an ambitious idea. I will give it that for sure. And in terms of um, Maureen O'Hara, definitely, definitely very sad to hear. Truly one of my favorite films is uh, The Quiet Man. And there's just, uh, just not, I don't really think there's going to be another one like her. She was truly a legend. So, uh, let's see. This, however, is going to be my last piece of moves. Really? Come on. (laughs) This is going to be my last piece of news. Uh, From rotoscopers.com by way of Morgan Stradling. Don Bluth and Gary Goldman want to bring back 2D animation with Dragon's Lair, the movie. Sing praises. The day we've all been waiting for has finally come. Don Bluth and Gary Goldman have finally pulled the trigger on Dragon's Lair the movie by opening up a Kickstarter to help raise money to make this dream a reality. Don and Gary are looking for $550,000 to get started. Now, if they reach this goal, that doesn't mean the Dragon's Lair film will automatically be made. It just means that the duo will have the necessary capital they need to pitch the film to studios. Other animators and filmmakers have done this recently. Uh, Disney animation veterans Aaron Blyze... Blaze and Chuck Williams uh, did this a few years ago with their film Art Story, and that film has yet to be greenlit. Um, let's see here. Yeah, uh, as, as is Don's expertise, the film will be traditionally an- animated. The duo are touting this as, quote, an opportunity to resurrect hand-drawn animation, end quote, which, if successful, could be huge since the majority of animation studios in the U.S. have steered away from feature-length traditionally animated films. This is definitely smart marketing on their behalf, since this angle is what helped Hullabaloo become so popular during its Kickstarter campaign last year. Uh, The article goes on to describe what Dragon's Lair is about, which is, of course, uh, based upon the video game from the arcades in 82-83. And uh, they have... Uh, several different levels of rewards, including an animation lesson with Dawn and a full-size color background 
from the original game. So that's pretty cool. Um, if you are into those kinds of things. Now, while I certainly think that there is definitely, uh, this is definitely a good way to market something and generate interest and buzz. And of course, then be able to have data to take to the studio along with your pitch to say, look, we, there are people that are willing to put money into this. And here's the numbers of people that are. And so they can get more like-minded people from the Kickstarter to go see the actual film. I don't know that... I, I personally don't know if something like this is really going to be all that successful in the long run. Um, it's not that 2D animation... Um, has gone to the wayside due to it being lackluster. I think it's because there haven't really been enough um, solid efforts outside of Princess and the Frog, really, uh, which even then did not did well, but not as well as they had hoped. And that was even with Lassiter pushing that effort. So. I, I, and I, and again, I think Dragon's Lair is a really cool concept. I was a big fan of the game in the arcades when I was a kid and definitely liked the idea, uh, and everything that it always put into my head. But I just don't know that this is the way to go to necessarily resurrect 2D, especially with someone who is as amazing as Don Bluth has been. Uh, and given his art style and his art direction in the films that he does. What do you think, Tim? I know that when we were doing our pre-show, you were definitely kind of jazzed about this info. Where where do you land? I like Don Bluth a lot, uh, especially Titan AE. I rewatched Titan AE a few months ago, and I, I still love it. And I think that was the last... Shit, yeah, I think that was the last feature film he, he worked on, if I'm remembering correctly. So I, his 2D animation is beautiful, and on top of that, he knows how to create good, hearty characters. I don't know. I think it would be kind of cool. I, so it'll, it's something different than from Disney Pixar, and personally, I'm kind of tired of Disney Pixar. It's become kind of the same run-of-the-mill, tug on your heartstrings, learn a couple lessons, and get ready for the next one next year. So... I don't know, this might be something a little bit different, and I'm cool with that. I think 2D animation is beautiful, and I think it's worth a comeback. Even if it has to be crowdfunded a little bit, I think it'd be kind of cool. True, and don't get me wrong, I'm not, I am definitely not against 2D animation. I just, um, I don't, my only concern is I'm not sure Dragon's Lair is the right vehicle to bring back said resurrection. That That's really, but, but, um, I'm definitely with you. I totally love Titan AE. I thought it was a great animated film. And even though it's very dated today, still dig the soundtrack. That would, you know, give me, give me some lit any day of the week. I'm All right. Bring, over my head. <laughs> All right. Bring us home on the news, sir. Alrighty. So I have one more article to talk about for a couple minutes, but then I have. An interactive piece of news with Matt. But we reviewed Crimson Peak last week, and neither of us gave it a super favorable review. I gave it a 2.5 or 2.75, maybe, oh wait, no, maybe I gave it a 3. But Matt gave it uh, significantly less 
of a, of a star rating, which kind of led me to want to talk about this article from filmschoolrejects.com in effort to make sense of Guillermo del Toro's, or Guillermo del Toro's, Failures at the Box Office. This is written by Max Coville. And the beginning of the article talks about Crimson Peak and how del Toro has a lot of what they say here, extremely vocal fans of his films, and people are very, uh, well, kind of like what I was talking about last week, people will will defend his movies so much if you don't like them. They, they'll question you. They want to know exactly why you don't like it, and they pretty much think you're a fool if you have anything negative to say about Hellboy, for example. And... Those people apparently did not go see Crimson Peak because Crimson Peak did not do well. Their extremely vocalness towards El Toro did not translate well into the ticket sales. And the article also talks about Pan's Labyrinth and how Pan's Labyrinth was a critical and box office success, which his next film would be Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And what they say here in the article, Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, quote, promoted the stunning new creatures Del Toro had imagined, not to mention superheroes were a hard proposition to lose with. A production budget of $85 million promised that this science fiction action film would live up to the pedigree behind it. But audiences failed to embrace Hellboy as an unlikely hero, as he is atypical to say the least. He's not exactly a crowd pleaser in the same sense that Batman and Iron Man are. And a question that is brought up is, is the issue, does the issue lie within Del Toro himself, or is it the type of movies that he chooses to make? The article continues. Despite Hellboy 2's gross... Warner Brothers, the same company, decided to make a $190 million budgeted film about giant fighting robots called Pacific Rim. And it is easily, quote, the most expensive film Del Toro has ever worked on. With the biggest names in the cast given supporting roles, the film promoted the high-octane special effects and large-format screenings rather than the stars Charlie Hunnam and Rinko Kukichi, or Kikuchi. Perhaps that was the best that the studio could do with the film because domestically, it was a nightmare. Despite positive critic reviews, the film debuted in third place on its opening weekend, making $4 million less than the riveting Grown Ups 2. Just days after Pacific Rim's release, Jeff Gomez, CEO of Starlight Run Entertainment, whose firm worked on the ad campaign, spoke to Business Insider about Pacific Rim's failure. Gomez stated that he believed that the problems mostly lay with the film being an original IP and that Warner Brothers would have marketed Pacific Rim as if the narrative in the movie had been going on for years and years. He further elaborated that they should have marketed the film as, quote, as if it was an established property, as if it has been going on and as if it has been popular and has already connected with the audience, end quote. In the article, jumping down here to the uh, last paragraph, quote, Del Toro's latest directional endeavor, Crimson Peak, is the most recent to fail at the box office, despite Universal's attempt to play up the haunted house aspect for its October release, hopefully gaining the attention of horror fans based on the current numbers, it would seem Crimson Peak will share the same misfortunes as Del Toro's last two features. The seasonal release combined with, arguably, his highest-profile cast ever, it seemed like a sheer bet 
This is speculation that perhaps some circumstances exist that could have changed the outcome. Benedict Cumberbatch and Emma Stone were attached to the film but dropped out. Universal also asked Del Toro to deliver a PG-13 version of the film, but he refused, giving the already niche genre an even more difficult path to profitability. It was laughably noted by Scott Mendelson of Forbes that, quote, The Women in Black 2 opened with $15 million back in January of this year, despite having no stars and no real media presence beyond the, quote, gee, the first film of the year is a horror movie again gimmick, end quote. In this day and age, it shouldn't be difficult for a horror film to make a sizable return in opening weekend. It should also be mentioned that Del Toro might regret saying that Crimson Peak wasn't a horror film for the last few weeks. The audience for an expensive, large-scale horror feature just didn't pan out, and opening in fourth place is probably not what Universal had foreseen for the film when they signed the check. For their part, Universal said it was a tough time for adult-oriented movies with Bridge of Spies and Sicario aimed at older crowds. Sure, Universal. And the article goes on from there a little bit. In all quotes. Matt, I, I, I think we're, we, we're both in agreement here that it isn't necessarily that Gilmero del Toro has lost his footing as a filmmaker, but he just chooses the wrong movies to make. Or maybe is it, or could it, or could it be both? Yeah, I, I gotta say, I, I, I believe that... I, okay, I think he's a very good idea man. He in in not quite as bad a vein as George Lucas, but he is a very very good idea man. He is very imaginative, and something fails. Something seems to fail in the transition from that great idea to the script. And I think he is. I think he's also a. I think he's an intelligent director so that when he actually gets on set in production and is behind the camera, I think he's intelligent and clearly competent. But one step of magic has already been lost between the idea and the script. And then we go one step further removed to post-production. And I think something else gets lost there too. And I don't know what it is. So is it that he's picking the wrong things maybe but it could also be that it's just somewhere in the line of the execution it's just completely falling apart and it's seriously starting to show at this point um specifically on crimson peak though just as a because i know you had brought it up you i have you at a 2.75 and me at a 1.75 for that on last week's show yeah and i think it's all that you said Plus, I know I, I, I'm pretty sure he has final cut. I, I think it's obvious he has final cut, and that might be a problem. I think he he needs a good like producing partner to help him, to help guide him, because it definitely seems like he does not have one of those. Right, and again, I, like we were saying before, you know, one of my favorite horror esque kind of films, fantasy films, is Pan's Labyrinth, and um. That was the first movie I had ever seen of his, and I, I, you know, to to know what he's capable of 
and then watch Crimson Peak is kind of sad. <laughs> and lastly, we'll do this quick. Yeah, we are way over the news right we now. We are way over the news, but from io9.com, the website that comes from the future, seven reasons horror movie sequels can only get less and less scary. This came out a couple months ago. I was excited to talk about it. This is the time to talk about it. But I'm just going to go through the uh, the points themselves and not go in, in, into any details. Number one, the sequel rarely gets to keep the same talent. True story. Number two, familiarity breeds contempt. Number three, after a certain amount of sequels, no one is even trying to make a good film. Number four, we already know the rules. Number five, the villains and monsters inevitably get dragged into the light. Number six, even the best heroes lose value and our sympathy. And number seven, people get used to nearly anything. Matt, do you have any other reasons why horror sequels can only get less and less scary? Now that now that now that we are professionals at the horror sequels, after watching, <laughs> um, I would say number number one needs to be replaced. Supplant number one and move them all down the list with this. It it just too quickly becomes a cash grab. Can you think of any any series of movies that after number three, like they made one more that was not a cash grab? No, uh, does it have to be horror? Can it be anything? It can be anything. Yeah, I would say uh, I would say Star Trek. Well, that's a good one. I honestly, uh, James Bond. Yeah, there you go, James Excellent. Bond. Oh wow, James this is Bond. hard. Uh, well, maybe not the Born the Born series. Um, let's see. Uh, I don't know. I can't really think of anything. Um, depending on how you want to look at it, I personally am not a fan, but I know that there are people that are. Harry Potter could be debated, I guess. I am a super huge fan of the books and am not a fan of the movies. So, so you're but, not going to rush out and see the new Harry Potter West End play? Play. It's coming out next year? Uh, no, I'm not. I wish I could. Because even though she did not actually write the play proper, the entire story that the play is built around, she did write. So, uh, and it is officially the eighth installment, as it were. But, no, I mean, so, I can't think, I honestly, really and truly can't think of anything else, though. What? I mean, I can think I'm of, I'm trying like, to think of things, I'm trying to think of things that have gone past three movies, really. Um, and there's not a whole lot. Indiana Jones, the fourth one of that was crap. Um, the Star Wars, of course, the prequels are terrible. Uh, um, Scream movies, Final Destination movies. Um, Saw. I don't think that... Okay, Saw, I don't... Saw, for me, is kind of like a middle ground, because while I don't think it was an out-and-out cash grab, some of them have mixed results beyond the third one. I mean, it's a total of seven, and you could argue that 
between four and seven, there are redeeming features, uh, especially for me, like five. I actually enjoyed Saw Five quite a bit. So, um, and their budgets are were so low that, so I don't know. But, hmm. Yeah, I'm definitely going to stand by Star Trek, though. Good one. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that is going to bring us to the news. And, uh, you mean bring, bring us, us into, out of the news? Yeah, bring us through the news. Yes, bring, bring through, Satan back. Satan, Satan did a yeah. better job than you. I don't want to bring Satan back. It's too hard to get rid of him. <sighs> he likes to hide in your anus, and it's just not fun. Um, Wait, but my anus or your anus? Because I want to know how in he was able anus. to. Oh, so he. So, so we have. <laughs> He's an we, asshole. We all have a little bit of Satan in our ass. That's right. Yeah, that's right. There with Lemmy that, Winks, and that and... is why. And that is why farting is good for you. You see, it releases, it exercises the devil. Will you please tell your youngest kid that? Like, teach her that, and so when she gets older, she's like, oh, I'm sorry, I have to, I have to fart in the middle of class or in the middle of taking a test, because I need a, I need a try, I'm trying to vanquish Satan out of my bowels. That's right. I don't know, I keep thinking this would make a great South Park bit or something, I don't Anyway, but we do have something Halloween-y to kind of relate to here. Uh, our good friend... Johnny White Trash decided to share with us his ideas on what he believes constitutes uh, a horror icon. And we are going to respond to said thesis. And we're going to do that right after he tells you what he thinks. Take it away, Johnny. Matt! Tim! I'm so glad I get to talk to you about this. For those of you listening at home, I, of course, am Johnny White Trash, and I, I have very important things to talk about with the listeners of the SLS cast. And basically, with Halloween coming up, I think we need to clear up, and we need to clear up a couple of misnomers about Horror movie icons, okay? Because there's been some confusion as of late to what actually constitutes a horror movie icon. And the two main deciding factors are, I know Matt and Tim will agree with me, of course, is that A, a horror movie icon has to have been in at least five movies. You know, they don't have to be played by the same person, but the actual character has to be in five movies or more. Sorry, but television series do not count in this equation. But they do help to the second part, whereas there has to be a modern-day recognition of these villains to make them horror icons. Such as, basically what I'm saying is, if you go ask ten people, and seven out of ten people don't know who the character is you're talking about, sorry, that person is not a horror icon. Now, there are some that are very confusing, okay? I'm going to clarify a couple of them for you here. Uh, For example, Frankenstein's monster, even though he is constantly uh, misnamed as um, 
as just Frankenstein, the doctor is Frankenstein, but that doesn't matter, has great, great recognition and has been in more than five movies, he is still a horror movie icon, as is Dracula. Now, here's one you might not think is a horror movie icon, but he is. He fits the criteria. Norman Bates. Everybody knows who Norman Bates is, and including the remake, there were five movies. He is a horror icon. Now, let's get into one that is kind of a... On the fence. On the fence. Okay? Ghost face from Scream. A lot of people ask me. They say, Johnny, in your export opinion, expert opinion, not export opinion, you're not asking me how to export files. You're asking my expertise in my chosen field, which is horror movie icons. Ghost face is not, is not a horror movie icon. Mainly because Ghost Face, at the end of each movie, is always revealed to be somebody else. You know, yes, it's a recognizable mask. It is a iconic horror symbol, but it is not a character itself. Other, other, uh, Horror icons wear masks, but it's still specific to them. Yes, Jason wears a hockey mask, but it's always Jason Voorhees, except for in the first movie, blah, 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 Karen Voorhees. But Karen Voorhees is not the horror icon. Jason is, okay? Now, another big one that people ask about as a horror icon is Candyman. I think it's pretty clear Candyman is no horror icon. You know, he is no Dracula, okay? Poltergeist is another weird one that people bring up all the time that, you know, I'm just going to have to leave that one alone. But I can tell you, I can tell you who is a horror icon. And I'm just doing this to help you all out. To help you all out. Chucky. From the Child's Play series, definitely a horror icon, okay? But then some people are like, oh, Johnny, what about The Exorcist? Uh Uh-uh, one movie, no good. You know, Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson in The Shining, that is a marvelous movie. But he is not a horror icon, you know? Now... The trickiest one comes when you're talking about zombies. It's not really a character. It's a creature type. See, Frankenstein, Dracula, Wolfman, those are actual characters. But vampires and werewolves are not horror icons. Because, no, well, they they are iconic horror. I don't even know what to call it. But there is not a zombie character. There are several. It's, trust me, trust me, it's something very similar, but it's not quite the same. Now here is, here is one I got to bring up that I really wish was a horror icon. And that, of course, is Pinhead from the Hellraiser movies. Great movies. I recommend if you're going to watch them, watch one 
two, four, and eight. If you like those, then go watch the rest. That's my, you know, that's my suggestion. But sadly, let me take a drink here. Sadly, Pinhead does not count because he does not have enough public recognition. It's just it's just too bad. I blame the kids for not knowing what a good movie is, but you know, when your last four movies you know were straight to video and your remake was buried because somebody didn't want to give up the license. Sorry, I love him, but he's not. Here's and and there's we're, we're getting close, folks. We're getting close. I'm just letting you know, okay? Here's one that is just so on the fringe that I really think it depends on who you ask. Leatherface. Now, if you just said, who the fuck is Leatherface, then clearly he is not a horror icon. But he is the main villain in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. He is in five movies. And the fringe about him being a horror movie icon the problem is not everybody knows him by name but everybody knows who he is you know so i don't know and then of course you got your big three your michael myers your jason Voorhees, and your freddy krueger your freddy krueger beyond reproach our horror movie icons. And I'm glad that I could spend this time with you to shed some light. Because, you know, I even saw somebody try and say death from the Final Destination series is a horror movie icon. Smarten up. I've heard people bring up Hannibal Lecter. I don't, I don't really know if the Hannibal movies are classified as horror movies. I always thought those were more, um, you know, thrillers or whatever you want to call them. But anyway, yes, there are some on the fringe, you know, some that could go either way, but for the most part, it's pretty clear cut. What is a horror icon and what is not? Thank you for your time. I hope you learned something. I've been Johnny White Trash. If you give a shit about me, you can go check out. Uh, I work for Available and ADHD. It's on Twitter. It's on Instagram. It's on Snapchat. It's on Snout. It's on SoundCloud. It's even on Facebook. Do all kinds of podcasting and video things. Thank you for your time. Now back to Matt and Tim. Truly, sir, you have a dizzying intellect. Um, now, I'm not going to bother going around and around with you again because we've done this on twitter we've done this in person uh you have the audio and we have and we and i've got the audio and we can do our own podcast on this particular subject at this point um i am simply going to state the following that you are certainly entitled to your own opinion However, simply stating something as your litmus test does not make it the only litmus test there is. If your personal qualification 
to be an icon is five films, then fine. But for the record, there were only three Psycho films and then a remake. So that's that's just something I, you know that I was able to glean from your context there. Um, another thing on that is that, and I know Tim will probably echo this in much more detail, which will be good because it's really his thing, and I feel bad because I'm kind of stealing it a little bit, <laughs> hijacking it anyway. It's probably the only thing I'm going to say, but oh, but go ahead. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm sorry then. Uh, is that if something becomes iconic by its nature and its presentation, then it is an icon, regardless of how many movies it gets, or whether or not it's played by different people, or whether it's the idea of Dracula, and then there are just 100 Dracula movies. Um, I personally use the fallback, and this is what started this whole thing, of Candyman. Now... I don't know if we if it would make your you know 30% cut or not of a poll of 100 people like on Family Feud but I know that people who discuss horror films and you can certainly go and find Candyman on the lists of horror icons and what have you this this Candyman only got two movies perhaps three but I know for sure two and yet I mean, Tony Todd is is like the man for this. And I can't name anyone who has seen these movies or knows about the idea behind Candyman who will go into a bathroom, turn off the light, and say Candyman five times into a mirror. I don't know anyone who will do that. I don't know anyone who has done that. Because quite frankly, they're either too scared to do it or they're probably dead. Because they apparently did it and we never heard from them again. I certainly respect your right to have your opinion and will defend to the death your right to have it. But I do not agree with where you're coming from on that at all. But happy Halloween, and thank you very much for the provocative piece that you provided to us. What do you think, Tim? Um, you know, pretty pretty much pretty much what you what you said. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've only seen the first Candyman only once, and I believe I watched it last year just for no no reason. It's like I, I I've never saw it. I've always heard about it. Too scared as a kid, even in '92 when it came out, didn't care to watch it. So I decided to watch it last year, and I it it, it creeped me out. It definitely creeped me out. It's a well made movie. But what I really wanted to talk about, which this is all written on a post-it note, so it's not going to be much. I, I definitely wholeheartedly disagree with the five-year stipulation on what stipulates as what can be iconic or who can five be iconic. Five movies, not five years. Five, oh, five, same, it's gotta, Yeah, it's got to be five movies. Well, you know, one movie a year for five years. <laughs> well, they can't all be Nightmare on Elm Streets, right? I, exactly. <laughs> But, again, what Matt said, Norman Bates was a horror movie icon before the sequels and especially the remake. <sighs> because once uh, the first one came out in six, the early 60s, 
there hasn't been a horror movie quite like it because it not only was it a just a horror movie, it was something that was different from a B or C or D horror movie. It was a A-list horror film made by the great Alfred Hitchcock. It was not just horror, it was a thriller. Uh, it was a caper even. Not, not a caper, but it was like a, a mystery, I mean. And it was a terrifying, chilling movie because at the end of the film, Norman Bates still kind of wins. It, I mean, yes, he's still, he's in jail. He's going to a psychiatric ward, but he still is a psycho and is still, you know, he's, I mean, he's still going to kind of get away with it. And the sequel didn't come out until years later. The third movie didn't come out until 19, I think 1990 or 91. And then of course you had the remake that came out in 96 or 97, 98. And then now we have Bates Motel. But it took that one movie, Alfred Hitchcock's original psycho film, to put uh, Norman Bates at the top of the of the of the classic horror character, you know, uh, ladder, I guess. So I think it just depends on the character's impact on the genre itself, in addition to the impact that the character has on the audience as well as the fans. You know, it's all about the impact on the genre because the genre of horror wouldn't be a genre if it didn't start out with Dracula, you know, with the characters that created and made the horror genre what it is and what it now became or what it what it has now become. So that's where I stand, just mainly with the stipulation. I mean, you know, that's it. Right on, right on. Okay, well, thank you again to Johnny White Trash for providing us with that uh, with that piece on his definition of horror icons. Uh, you can definitely find him over at johnnywhitetrash.com and also, of course, as he already mentioned, available in ADHD, so you can find that all over the place. Twitter and fucking Pinterest and I don't even know whatever the fuck. He's got it, though. Um, so, yeah, thank you again, and we appreciate that. And please feel free to send us other pieces that we can apparently deconstruct after the fact when you can't defend yourself. (laughs) Uh, All right. So that is going to then bring us into Copycat Throwdown. It's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown. That's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Well, that's right. It's the copycat throwdown. Stop it! Stop it! No, no. Seriously, stop it. Oh, right. Like, stop repeating. Stop repeating. Right. Oh, okay. I'm gonna kick your ass. All right, so uh, this time on Copycat Throwdown, the matchup is Escape from New York versus Lockout. Now, this is a kind of a technical copycat because of, as we referenced last week with Tim's piece, that Lockout actually lost a copyright infringement claim in in, uh, the French court system and was forced to pay out... uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 600,000 uh, euros, I believe. Maybe it was $600,000. I can't remember uh, how they referenced the, the dollar figure. 
And so because it had lost that copyright lawsuit, we decided, well, let's take a look at both of these movies and see if they really do follow the same patterns or whatever. So we watched Escape from New York and uh, watched Lockout. I actually watched them both today. And just to try and, because I had not ever seen Lockout before, and it has been damn near 25 years since I've seen Escape from New York, I decided to watch Lockout first. And for those who are not familiar with the idea behind it, it's Lockout, a 2012 French science fiction action film. And it stars Guy Pierce and Maggie Grace. Um, and of course has the illustrious Peter Stormare. Amazing man. I love his acting. And Guy Pierce plays this uh, CIA agent who has been wrongfully convicted of a murder. And through a rather fortuitous circumstance for him, but not for everybody else, he finds himself with a deal. Rescue the daughter of the President of the United States from this space prison, and you get your life back. Um, this movie is really, it's based, <laughs> it's funny, I was reading the credits, and it was really kind of funny after this article, you know, based on an original story by Luc Besson. <laughs> um, I guess he was regretting that. I gotta say, between these two movies... I personally don't think that there's enough to say that there's any kind of copyright infringement. Truly, I don't. Um, the themes of the movies are completely different. The characters themselves are completely different. The, the scenarios are similar. Okay, you've got a guy who is, you know, tough guy extraordinaire with a smart mouth who has to go against impossible odds into the craziest prison you can think of to rescue you know, someone super high up in the government, even though technically the first daughter is not super high up in the government, but you get the idea. Prestige is prestige. Beyond that though, they really aren't the, they really aren't the same. It's kind of like trying to say that a movie like Stalag 17 and fucking the great escape are the same thing. And they're not, even though they both take place in German concentration camps and they both deal with uh, all of the things that go into an escape and the politics behind who gets to do what and why, but they're two completely different movies. They have the same basis because it's similar subject matter, but they're not the same movie. Personally for me, it's the same here with Escape from New York and Lockout. That being said, Lockout is a pretty terrible movie overall. However, Guy Pierce saves this movie. I thought that he was super fucking funny. Um, he he totally sells this character of <clears throat> Marion Snow. Yeah, you'll get it. If you watch the movie, you'll get it eventually. And he is just wisecracking. It's hilarious. I mean, we're talking about a guy who gets to deliver lines such as, Here's some apples and here's a gun. Don't talk to strangers. You shoot them. I mean, it's like, come on, that's great. Um, unfortunately, of course, not all of his lines work out, and you still have to have those lines delivered to other people, and therefore you have, you know, other things. Um, 
switching gears to Escape from New York. Now, Escape from New York is 1981 American dystopian action film, and this was co-written, scored, uh, co-written, co-scored, and directed by John Carpenter. And whereas Lockout takes place in 2079 and was made in 2012, or at least released in 2012, this was made... Uh, this was released in 1981 and supposedly takes place in 1997. Um, this Carpenter wrote this film as kind of a reaction to the Watergate scandals, but the ideas and the themes behind the film still are really kind of interesting to look at today. And I think that the cinematography and definitely a lot of the design aspects of these of this film are still really, really good. But on the whole, the film has just really aged terribly and is, is, has a lot of poor dialogue with a lot of kind of, uh, uh, a lot of similar aspects in the writing that plagued House that we talked about last week are kind of similar here. Like, oh, here's just this random thing and this is what happens. And, oh, here's this other random thing and this is just what happens. Now, it's wrapped around a much better plot. But here, we've got Kurt Russell as, I mean, literally coming on screen and looks like he's, I mean, he just looks like an action figure come to life from the second that he walks on the screen. And... Yet, it's just the action is hackneyed, um, really by today's standards. And it just has not aged well overall. So while on a technical level, I have to say that Escape from New York is the better film, um, I enjoyed Lockout more because of Guy Pierce's performance. And they literally, in this particular scenario balance each other out i have my in the in the let's see here one two three four five six this is the ninth time that we have done a copycat throwdown and this is my first draw this is an actual draw for me so i have no winner to draw escape from new york is the same as lockout man you only get one draw for every 200 episodes <laughs> So so well, good. I'm glad we'll be it doing worked this out. again for a while. Yeah, <laughs> I'm glad we did this because it kind of shows you how stupid people are. <laughs> like like I, I tell you, like the court ruling and whatnot. Because I I went so lock out when it first came out back in 2012, and I didn't like it. I liked it a little bit more watching it here at home. Um. I, I, maybe because I was able to drink more while watching it. I, I don't know. But I did enjoy it a little bit more. Maybe I, I knew what I was getting myself into. Therefore, I was able to enjoy it more. Now that I'm more familiar with uh, the catalog of Academy Award-worthy films of Luc Besson. <laughs> but both films, Escape from New York and Lockout, are quite different other than the, other than the general storylines. Lockout is more of an homage in a way than a downright copy. But Lockout is definitely a subpar Luke Besson film. It's filled with great ideas, 
quick cuts, generic characters and dialogue, and lots and lots of B and C movie action that only looks good when it's teased in a trailer. Guy Pierce's character Snow spends more time with his hostage than Snake did with the president. Snake doesn't spend a lot of time with his hostage president until closer to the end of the movie, or the third act of the movie. An Escape from New York might be dated looking, but it definitely looks more convincing and less cheap than Lockout. I'm not sure what Lockout was trying to go for with its effects. I mean, if executed correctly, they would have been fantastic sequences because, I mean, there was a lot of blue screen. There was a lot of cheap effects. It's kind of like whenever you watch the special features of a of like Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or Star Trek or, you know, anything like that. Uh, The newer Star Trek where it's CGI heavy and you see the, oh, I forget what they're called, but they, they do like demo graphics. So the animators know what the scene is supposed to look like. And, you know, before all the color correction, you know, goes like a, like kind of like a a storyboard uh, demo kind of CGI look to it, I guess, to show you show the actor or show the the production company that you're working for, whoever, what the action is supposed to look like. Well, this is what most of the special effects looks like in Lockout. It's like they forgot about fixing the rest of the special effects. Escape from New York is older. It's a little bit more dated, but it consistently looks visually good. It's definitely more interesting to look at. It's more interesting to watch. The pacing is good. The dialogue is more interesting. But I do agree with Matt. I mean, Lockout has a little more snap to it. Uh, Whereas Escape from New York jumps from one scene to the next. And that's pretty much all that I wrote down. Uh, I myself will have to go with Escape from New York. Uh, But before we end this, something that's very interesting that I found online via a website called HalloweenLove.com, an article, John Carpenter's Lockout Lawsuit in the Strange Precedent It Sets. It's written by John Squires. And there's a couple there's a, a, a couple little tiny selections I wanted to read from here because it's very interesting. And, um, and, and it, and it kind of goes into detail of how kind of scary that what happened to Lockout yeah, I mean, it, this could be a thing that might happen later on because somebody got butt hurt over somebody that paid maybe a little, slightly more than just a homage to their work. But it says this, uh, quote, Ever since the first person picked up a camera and made a movie, filmmakers have been drawing inspiration from one another to the point that every type of movie has an unwritten set of rules that are almost universally followed. Whether we're talking action films, horror films, or sci-fi films, In many ways, every movie is a copy of a copy of a copy, and that has become particularly true in recent years. Filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino have turned the cinematic homage into an art form, using classic favorites as the launching point for their own unique stories. Reservoir Dogs, for example, was heavily inspired by the Hong Kong film City on Fire, while Django Unchained derives its name from a series of Italian westerns. The original Django film itself was itself an unofficial tribute to Kurosawa's Yojimbo. Of course, many film fans have criticized Tarantino over the years for stealing from other artists, though the truth of the matter is that his penchant for doing so is only widely publicized because he never shies away from revealing his sources. 
The reality is that every filmmaker does what Tarantino does to varying extents. And if you think John Carpenter doesn't fit that bill, you'd be quite wrong. And the article goes on from there, and and the article does talk about his 1976 film, Assault on Precinct 13, uh, which presents a new spin on ideas culled from Night of the Living Dead and Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo and seminal slasher classic Halloween can similarly be traced back to the earlier works of another filmmaker, Bob Clark's Black Christmas inspired Carpenter to make Halloween, and in fact it was based on Clark's loose idea for a Halloween set sequel to Black Christmas. So yeah, that was that article that I just wanted to mention. So it's very interesting uh, that that something like this is able to happen, and it's not getting enough media attention. And it, it is kind of it is kind of frightening, though it is France. And it is not the U.S., and I really don't see this happening um, in the U.S. unless it is a blatant ripoff. So, copycat throwdown, Escape from New York gets my vote. Well, there you go. All right, so next week we are going to do a three squared. We haven't done one of those for a few weeks now. And we are going to take a look at a... At, at, at our picks for a forgotten actor, we're going to focus on actors this time so that uh, we can revisit this and do actresses um, at a later date. So we're going to focus on a forgotten actor with three examples of their work. So these are people that, these are actors that are going to be remembered uh, by film historians, true film buffs. Uh, basically pretty much people like Tim and I, uh, that we would bring them up in conversation and people would be like, seriously, again, with the fucking, you think you're smarter than everybody else shit. It'll be that kind of thing. Um, but I think this is really cool. And when Tim brought this idea up, I definitely like this, uh, because we, we often do, uh, forget where, the actors of today got their inspirations from and also the groundwork that was laid by actors of bygone eras and these uh actors that the actors that we pick um might be because they did themselves in in one way or another but it also could just be time has uh done its work so that's going to be our three squared for next week uh the bonus segment for a forgotten actor with three examples of their work. So, without further ado, I believe that will bring us to... The Movies! This week's movies are I Married a Witch, Carnival of Souls, and Vampire. Where would you like to start there, sir? Why don't we go from newest to oldest and go with Carnival of Souls from 1962 first? Very good. Carnival of Souls, 1962 American independent horror film starring Candace Hillegoss. It was directed by Herc. Harvey, and is about a young lady who is riding in a car when it, uh, when they decide to drag race, 
And due to a fatal error, the car careens over the side of the bridge. And our young heroine, Mary, is left to deal with the aftermath. Now, something that you're going to probably notice uh, that is going to be a recurring theme for these films, um, and probably by the fact that you may not have heard of these movies, is that these fi- all of these films, for one reason or another, um, were either uh, short-lived as far as being on the radar and or were not well received uh when they were released however they have since become somewhat celebrated in uh either critical format or cult following beyond that and carnival of souls definitely takes the cake here this is a movie that really relies on hardly any special effects whatsoever and instead uh, Roger Ebert, there's actually a really nice, um, there's a really nice quote here, and I want to read that because it's very important in in this review. Uh, Robert e- Roger Ebert said, "Quote: Unlike most of today's horror movies, Carnival of Souls has few special effects, some wavy lines as we pass through various levels of existence, and that's it. Instead, it depends on crisp black and white photography, atmosphere, and surprisingly affecting." acting end quote now what that means is is that this is in it in and of itself a true horror movie it's not about jump scares it's about setting you in a scenario that leaves you both wanting to know what's about to happen and understand why the protagonist is is going through what the protagonist is going through, but at the same time, not wanting to know because you're going to fear the answer. And it scares you. It's not necessarily about how gory it has to be or did something pop out of somewhere to go boo. It's about setting a tone. And this film does it very, very well for me. Um, The only flaw that I have is while I definitely really dig Candace Hillegas and um, and her portrayal, I feel like the rest of the cast kind of... Um, lagged behind a little bit. Their performances weren't terrible by any stretch of the imagination, but I felt in this particular um, outing that they were somewhat outclassed. Um, She just really seemed to be driving... She really seemed to be in the driver's seat, as it were. Um... The idea of the themes of having to of of the of this recurrence of um, the man and uh, sorry it's it's referred to as the man as a character but not what we associate today. It it's it's something that allows you to kind of look into it, and you get to decide what it means, and you get to decide what this character represents and stands for. Um, it's got a really thought provoking ending to it, but again, all of the other characters around her 
I just felt were outclassed by her performance. And for me, it kind of caused the movie to stumble a little bit. But overall, I got to give this one a four out of five. Four stars. What do you got for us there, Tim? Carnival of Souls is an impressive debut film for writer John Clifford and director Herc Harvey. In addition to this being their first feature film, it also serves as their last. Herc Harvey made his living producing and directing educational and industrial films and actually came up with the idea of Carnival of Souls while driving back home to Kansas from California and passing by an abandoned pavilion in Salt Lake City, Utah, which happened to be the same abandoned pavilion which was used in the film. He took off from work and shot the film in three weeks with a budget of around $30,000. With the exception of a week spent filming at the abandoned pavilion in Salt Lake City, the remaining two weeks were spent in his and writer John Clifford's hometown of Lawrence, Kansas. The film is made up of many intriguing aspects, one of them being its script. Once Clifford had a general idea of what Harvey wanted, he set out and made a very original and unconventional script. In a short essay that he wrote for the Criterion release of Carnival of Souls, Clifford writes that he, quote, was freed by the fact that I had no need to worry about Hollywood formats. I didn't have to conform in any way. I knew who the producer and the director would be and that he would be open to whatever I proposed. It is, for instance, one of the few films from that period, or even today, that has no love story or romance, or even a subplot, end quote. And this makes the movie unique and different from other conventional crowd-pleasers. In fact, these are the very same qualities that makes the two other films that we're going to be reviewing for this week's podcast, I Married a Witch and Vampire, comparable in quality. All three of these films are today still being circulated amongst the cinephile and film historian communities. Another commonality that these three films share is that they haven't been fully recognized and appreciated until well after their original releases. Two of them, Vampire and I Married a Witch, were considered disastrous disappointments for their time. Carnival of Souls was, according to Clifford, from the same essay, quote, created, directed, filmed, and edited by people who love the idea of making a picture not to exploit anything or fit into any special niche, but just to make the best film they could with the limited resources available to them, end quote. If you were to compare this to most of the more modern horror movies, I guarantee you that you'll come to the conclusion that modern horror films have gotten used to trying to trick us, the audience, into horror by way of grisly violence, copious amounts of blood, gore, or even a jolt of loud music. The writer of the book, How Movies Work, Bruce Cowan, says in his essay that, quote, horror movies take place in their own territory. The trick is just to get us there, end quote. Souls lures the audience into horror by way of this technique. By the technique of horror movies take place in their own territory, the trick is just to get us there again. In the setting that it's based in, quote, it can look the same, 
but be different underneath. Different in a way you can't define. A perceptible but invisible tonal shift that is the ideal of one kind of horror film. End quote. This film succeeds in being not just atmospheric and creepy, but mostly unsettling. Well-executed movie moments that I would like to mention, I can't really mention any without giving too much of the movie away. There's just so many of them. And I absolutely do not want to spoil this movie for probably most of you you guys that are listening to this podcast. Most of you probably have not seen it. But I do implore you to please check it out. Uh, Criterion has a release on it. You can buy the DVD. It's on uh, Hulu. You can go watch it on Hulu uh, for free with commercials. Or you can get the Hulu no commercial thing and watch it like you're watching an actual movie. It's a really good film. They have shots in that movie that have never been used in any other horror flicks. For instance, somebody driving a car and they look out their passenger side window and all they see is scenery, you know, their their car zipping past, uh, you know, a, a field or something like that. The woman looks back and looks straight ahead. And after a few moments, she glances over again at the passenger side window and suddenly there's a face looking back at her. You see that a lot in many horror movies nowadays, over and over and over again. But at that time, it was shocking. And the movie also has a lot of really cool cuts to it. How they cut to the next scene. Uh, I'm trying to remember, like, she's there's a shot of her pushing a, her car radio button. to, Or she's doing something with the knob. And then the camera kind of closes in on her hand, touching the knob. And then it cuts to the next scene, which is her at her... A big church organ, and she's fiddling with the knob on the church organ. Just really cool, very inventive stuff like that that keeps you, the audience, the viewer, captivated by what you are seeing and interested by what you are seeing. And it's also a shame that these two guys didn't do anything after this movie. But maybe it does, maybe it says something. Maybe it's something unique. It's something cool that, you know, you don't have to make millions of, of, of movies just because you made one good one. Because as what we know with like Guillermo del Toro, like what we were talking about, he's made a couple of fantastic movies, but he's had a lot of stinkers as well. And so I guess that's why I think Carnival of Souls is very unique. I'm glad we watched it. I'm glad we both uh, enjoy it and appreciate what it has to offer to the horror genre. I give this one 4.5 out of 5 Based on the movie, I guess on, on principle or precedent or whatever, I'd give this movie a five in a heartbeat. But of course, it does have some issues being a low, low, low budget movie, but it's still fantastic. 4.5 out of 5, Carnival Souls. Right on. Okay, well, moving then to 1942's I Married a Witch. Uh, it's a fantasy romantic comedy film. It's directed by Renee Claire and stars Veronica Lake and Frederick March. Now, this is a movie about a father-daughter uh, witch pair in Colonial Salem who find themselves burned at the stake and their ashes buried under a tree to pre- prevent their souls from escaping or whatever. Um, <laughs> and, of course, centuries pass. Eventually, they find themselves... Um, 
They find themselves freed. Uh, shortly before she died, the daughter placed a curse on the family of the man who condemned her to burn at the stake and is now, they're now going to check on this family to see how it's going. And of course, the, the, the heir or whatever is played by the same guy. And he is about to marry a just the girl he's going to marry is just a terrible choice. However, he's a political man. He's running for governor. Uh, this girl's father, his future father-in-law is basically funding his campaign. So it is what it is. Um, one thing kind of leads to another and our young daughter, witch kind of finds herself rather taken with her cursed relative or the, the man the relative of the man that she cursed the descendant and shenanigans ensue as i always like to say um this is definitely a very cute film and of the three films that we're covering this week this one actually did the best uh in terms of upon its release and actually the film was actually nominated for an academy award for best music and to give you an idea of at least it did get on the radar for the most part um i found this to be kind of a precursor to the idea behind bewitched believe it or not as well as kind of the um kind of the zany rom-coms with you know rock hudson doris day in the 60s and Again, kind of a precursor to those things. Um, somewhat silly and yet still fun. But in this particular way, while it's great for its time, and I think in, if you are a fan of film overall and enjoy classic cinema, I think you will also enjoy this movie because it's cute, it's fun, uh, it's got some interesting ideas behind it. But I would say that it is heavily dated, and due to the fact that it is heavily dated, uh, I have to I have to give this one four stars as well. I enjoyed it, um, but it's definitely not something that would be done again today. And if somebody tried it, it would be terrible. Um, four stars for me on "I Married a Witch." What do you got there, Tim? "I Married a Witch" was produced by Paramount Pictures. The film's director, leading actress, and the film itself has, over the years, been more or less forgotten. The leading actress was Veronica Lake. She's absolutely charming on screen, but in person she was difficult and no stranger to clashing with fellow co-stars and directors. French director René Clare, because he was deemed as too traditional in his filmmaking style by those like... Francois Truffaut, and Jean-Luc Goddard, who came out of the French wave of cinema, the cinema movement during the late 1950s, they deemed the director as too traditional and didn't really put it past him calling him a, an old-fashioned guy, I'll say that. And it wasn't just René Clair either, but other European, especially French filmmakers, were accused of being too old-fashioned as well. And as for the movie itself being forgotten... Paramount made the film. 
but they were forced to sell the movie to United Artists due to already having an overabundance of product. That transaction is what ultimately hurt the film, because it then became neglected by both companies. Paramount made it, then sold it to United Artists, who United Artists didn't make it, so the attachment to it wasn't that strong. There's a lot of interesting aspects to the structure and the story of I Married a Witch. For example, the opening vignettes of the wooly men suffering through their relationships. The witches can only take a form of somebody via fire. So the father witch sets a building on fire to manifest a body for Jennifer. Another interesting thing, the mentions of the electric chair being a modern day burning someone at the stake. I found all that very interesting and very uh, surprising to see that on screen for its time. And even though I found the first two acts of this film to be significantly stronger than the third and final act, uh, because once the main story has been conveniently resolved, the film quickly ends, it's still a very enjoyable and funny film. Veronica Lake plays Jennifer as an unbelievably irresistible and sheepishly attractive woman as her father absolutely steals the show with his drunkenly villainous plans to downright destroy Wallace Woolley's reputation. I Married a Witch is a breath of much-needed fresh air and reminded me that it doesn't take scares, thrills, blood, or guts to get me into the Halloween spirit. So I give this one four stars as well. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I laughed. It's it's a fun little kind of like 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 a rom com type of type of movie. And even if even if you're not a cinephile, even if, if you just kind of like older movies but you know don't really care about them as much, I still think you might find it more entertaining than others, I guess, because it's a zippy movie. It's a zippy fun movie. And all these movies are actually less than 80 minutes long. So you'll have the time. Four stars for I Married a Witch all around. Right on. Okay, well, then that leads us to Vampire, a 1932 German-French horror film directed by Danish director Carl Theodor Dreyer. Um, this is a film it's it's actually one of the earlier uh talky films basically and was originally shot to be done in multiple language it was actually one of the first truly international minded films it was actually shot in german in french and in english although the english prints were ultimately either never completed or ultimately lost uh, they actually had the actors mouth their dialogue, which was very limited for this reason, in German and in French and supposedly in English. And then in post-production, they went and then dubbed everything in. Um, this is a film that was not very well received in its time. And this actually kind of covers the idea behind the vampire more or less it's kind of like very early takes on the vampire mythos that we come to know and understand and 
It revolves around a gentleman by the name of Alan Gray who comes to an inn and basically his life is kind of turned upside down. <laughs> I don't want to give too much away. Uh, and it's really interesting because even though it is a sound movie, it uses quite a lot of silent film uh, techniques. You can clearly see this is a transition kind of a piece. Um but it's got a lot of really, really interesting ideas. Shot A lot of the shots um, were on location. Uh, well, really, almost everything. And you get the idea of the kind of vision that early cinema, the, the early masters of cinema, especially um, in Europe, especially in France, uh, but although this is Danish, a Danish guy doing German French stuff. So you are getting really interesting and creative spins on the, on, on kind of the idea of the vampire mythos. It's not a vampire. Again, the movie is entitled vampire. And so, and, and, at the end of the day, I, I'm just, I, it's, it's a really hard movie to talk about in terms of walking you through it. That's why I've kind of limited what I have given to you in terms of the actual plot of the movie. But I want to stress the idea of the mythos that surrounds the movie. But this is a really cool window into how movies were made in this time and the transition that was going on in this time period. Also, it's really interesting to note that of the idea of what was, you know, of what horror was like then. And there are some very creative dream sequences, very creative deaths that happen in this film. And again, you got to remember, this is 1932. And it's kind of difficult to to watch some of these because despite it being 1932 there is an element of realism that went into um the production of these kinds of things that you end up seeing on film ultimately though while the production is really interesting and a lot of the cinematography and the style and the shots are definitely worth watching the actual um, throughput of the film itself is somewhat lacking. Um, it's just, it, it's really kind of hard, uh, at least it, for me, it was really kind of hard to, to watch it in one sitting. And I did find myself taking breaks from it. Not because it was bad, but because because it was so different. And because these things have... These things, these transitions were done better um, in other formats of the time period. But this is still a really unique window into the ideas of horror, about the ideas of the mythos that we know within horror. And some really cool stuff was done with the movie. But the film itself is, for me, just a, just a liked it. It just comes in at three stars. Um Film buffs and cinephiles, I really recommend you check it out. Uh, anyone else, 
would I think would be interested, but I don't know that you would find it to be a masterpiece. So three stars. Bring us home, Tim. Vampire is a really good movie. It's a well-conceived movie. I gave this one 3.5 out of 5. I think this is one that once you see it, you'll want to, and once you get to the end of the movie, you'll want to rewind it and rewatch the last 30 minutes or so of it again, because I guarantee you, your mind will probably wander off and then the end happens or the last 10 minutes happens and it brings you back in. And I think that's also part of the charm of, of the movie itself. It's like some of Mozart's most classic pieces of, of music where he plays a song and it kind of goes and goes and goes and he knows when the audience is kind of getting tired and then he picks the song back up to bring people back into what he is creating. And I, to me, this is what this movie was like. There's a lot of brilliance the movie starts off kind of in a lull, then there's brilliance, and then it goes back into a lull, and there's a brilliance, and then it goes back into a lull, and then it's brilliance all the way up through through the end of the film. It was an experimental movie, Vampire was, and it was made outside of studio supervision. Uh, the director, Carl Theodore Dreyer, this was his first sound film, so he decided to keep the film free from spoken dialogue as much as possible. Uh, which is pretty much the majority of uh, the time during the movie. You hear, yeah, you hear sound effects, but it's mainly the backing music that really is the the the, the impactful sound throughout the entire movie. And in a way, it's very much like Fritz Lang's M that came out some years, a few years, uh, actually, yeah, I guess it was a couple years earlier than Vampire. It was Fritz Lang's, one of his very first sound movies, and there is hardly any spoken dialogue in the movie, and it's, it's mainly silent. It's a riveting film. The brilliance that I was kind of alluding to or talking about a little while ago, some really fantastic in-camera special effects were done. Uh, for example, there is these ghosts and shadows, uh, shadow effects that happen where he's walking around and all of a sudden uh, he's walking around as in uh, Julian West, the actor who plays Alan Gray. In the film, Alan Gray is walking around, and he's following these shadows around, and he keeps looking for, you know, the, the people, the humans that these shadows are attached to, but he can't find them, so he's following the shadows, and he's the, the reflection. It's just a brilliant... And the entire sequence culminates into a shadow connecting back with the human form. And it's seamlessly how they how God how he how he fucking does it is fucking seamlessly and it's it's brilliant, brilliant. And then you also have the end of the film, equally maybe even more so brilliant end of the film, where it cuts between Alan Gray and Giselle, his the love interest I guess, as they're crossing the very uh, foggy river to I guess sanctuary <laughs> i suppose and then you have one of the main the main villain i'm not going to say who the main villain is because it is a, a a secret until the end of the film but it cuts 
back and forth from the good guys trying to find salvation, not necessarily find salvation, but to get out of the fogginess of the river and and go to the the clearing of the forest to where hope is, which is where they'll find hope. And it keeps cutting back from from them to an inside of a of, of a chamber within a flour mill, which is where I guess you can call him the villain. The, the villain has gotten locked within, and so somebody turns on the flour mill, and suddenly the flour starts coming down, and then it cuts back to the couple, and they're moving away from from the castle or from the from the house, and then it cuts back to the villain, and the flour is coming up and up and up, you know, closer to his, uh, cl- uh, you know, uh, almost covering his torso, and then it cuts back to the couple. And they're doing their thing, and it cuts back to him, and then it's up to his neck, cuts back to the couple, and finally they've reached the, the, the clearing within the forest, and it's sunlight. The fogginess is behind him, and it's sunlight. So all hope is there, and all is well with their lives. And then it cuts back to the final shot of the villain within that flower chamber, and he has been suffocated by flower, and he is dead. And what is very interesting about that shot, what is very unique for that time period, especially about that shot, well, maybe not so with uh, French or, or German films, like with Nosferatu, you have a lot of lingering shots, which is very effective for that film. But the movie doesn't fade to black, or they don't cut away from the guy encased in flowers, suffocating, or who has been suffocated, I guess. It just sits there as more flower just falls on top of them. It's it's a beautiful shot. It's a ballsy shot. You wouldn't see that in American film from or or a, a very popular mainstream Hollywood studio picture from that time. And it's very unique. And to me this movie is very unique. But I still give it 3.5 out of 5. I hope I can go back and watch it you know, in a few months or or a year or so, and then I might give it more stars. But it's still a very good movie. Check it out. Right on, right on. Okay, so next week uh, we have got Turbo Kid, Bridge of Spies, and Beasts of No Nation. Those are going to be the movies that we are going to be watching. Uh, Let's see here. So I think without further ado, that will bring us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Spiel on! Alright, well, the music you've been listening to for our intros and segments has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLSCast.com. You can also send us an email to the show at SLSCast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at the SLSCast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can also follow Tim on Twitter if you like to do that. Just climb aboard that information superhighway and track him down. And, of course, don't forget that you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Ernest Borgnine, I get to say this. Writers used to make such wonderful pictures without all that swearing, all that cursing, and now it seems that you can't say three words without cursing. And I don't think that's right. Take care, guys, and have a fun, safe, and non-too-alcoholic Halloween. And look out for Satan throwing bottles of 
glass and urine at you. <laughs> From an asshole. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.